If you would, open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as you remain standing as we read God's Word together. We'll pick up our text in verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk work properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. So, Father, we thank you. We pray this morning that you would minister to our hearts through your word. Bless the teaching of it. In spite of your servant, Lord, I pray, bless your children. And, Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right, you may be seated. So I want to read a little bit of uh, chapter 3, and especially since that we uh, had a little interruption in the continuity of our book. Uh, this last week is I had to go back and finish chapter 2. So just for context's sake, let's look at chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. It says, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. A couple of things I just want to take note of here. First of all, I love what Paul says here, how he desired to see their face. He was not an email and text kind of guy. He wanted to sit down with them and speak to them face to face. That was his desire. But because of circumstances, he was prevented to do so. So he takes the opportunity to send a letter to them, an epistle. And they would be eager to receive it, as we have seen in chapter 3, how they desired to see Paul just as much as he desired to see them. And Paul encourages them here at the end of chapter 3 uh, to grow in love one for another. And we'll see in our section this morning, it's another exhortation to do the same. 
And I, it's a key point within this section. There's a couple of things that we're going to look at this morning, but that's one of them. And that is growing in love one for another. Because Paul makes two exhortations so quickly, so close together, I think we can draw a conclusion that it is something that needs to be, that we needs to be reminded of to grow in love one for another. And I hope that you understand that when I say that, I am not speaking of that warm, fuzzy feeling of love one to another. That's good, and we should. We should have affection toward one another. But when we're talking about love, we're talking about action in our lives. We're talking about ministering one to another, blessing one another in every way that we possibly can. And the irony uh, to all this, of course, is I think our church is a very loving church in, in all aspects of love, the emotional side of it, but also in the desire to minister to one another's needs, which is great. But Paul encouraged them because he saw that within the church and he blesses them, but he says to them, grow more and more. So that should tell us that we need to grow more and more in love one to another because the word is there for that purpose to encourage us and to strengthen us in these things. Well, in chapter two, Paul reminded the Thessalonians how he walked among them. And now here in chapter four, Paul reminds them how to walk in the way to please God. And walk simply means to live or behave in a customary manner with possible focus upon continuity of action, uh, to live, to behave, and to go about doing. So it's an action word. It's not passive. If you're walking with the Lord, it isn't that you're passive in that relationship, but that you're active and going forward all the time, growing in him. And this is what Paul is going to be telling the uh, Thessalonians, the Thessalonians. He starts out in verses one through eight, he tells them to walk with God in holiness. And that's what we will look at is what, that, what does that look like in our lives? And then nine to 11, to walk with God in love. And then in verse 12, to walk with God in honesty. And then finally, the end of the chapter, which we will not get to today, verses 13 through 18, to walk with God in hope. And so we could easily categorize this chapter as the walking chapter, walking in love and obedience, sanctification, purification, all these different things that Paul is going to speak to us here. We will never go wrong by walking in such a way that we please God. Never. As a matter of fact, I can honestly tell you, I have never, I have never regretted, nor has there been a negative experience in my life in becoming more godly in my life, walking more intimately with Christ. Never have I regretted that. Never has it been something that brought harm to my life. Even when you suffer persecution for your faith in Christ, believe me, it's worth every bit of it. And so it is that we are exhorted, encouraged, and we should desire to walk closer with the Lord each and every day, each and every hour, you know, each and every minute, each and every second. It should be our heart's desire to be more like Christ, to be sanctified, and we're going to talk about that. Here, first of all, in verses one through eight, what he gives to us is an exhortation to sexual purity. And, you know, I, I, 
As I study through this, I'm thinking to myself, what an appropriate time in the history of man to be speaking on a topic such as this. For the, the church is rife with sexual immorality. And the world, of course, it, there doesn't even need to be anything spoken of. It is sexual immorality. It's not just in it, it is sexual immorality. So the exhortation that Paul will give here certainly is applicable to us today in the church. But he starts out in verse one, he says, finally then brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and how to please God. Paul's use of uh, the finally does not mean that he's finished. This is actually all what it means here is that he is beginning to close the epistle and that basically what he is doing is he's coming to the meat of the, of the epistle. Before it was great stuff that we received from Paul through his writing, but he says, okay, so now here is one of the main points that I wanna to speak to you about. Paul was thankful for the growth that he saw in the Thessalonians but still look for them to abound more and more in a walk that would please God. Like I said, it is perfectly applicable to us today. This is something that God would want for us. He desires that we would grow more intently in our walk with Christ, to become more and more like him. And the more time that you spend with him, the more you become like him. If you ever noticed in your life that that you are very similar to those who you've spent a lot of time with. You know, there are a lot of things in my character and in my life that are there because I spent a lot of time with my father. My father had a huge influence over my life. And because of that, I'm a lot like him. And as a matter of fact, if you knew my dad, which many of you did, some of you did, one of the things that was quickly discovered is that we sounded alike just like my two brothers and I, we sound alike. And we have that, that a lot of the same characteristics that my dad did because we hung out with him. So what's my point? My point is this, the more that you hang out with Jesus, the more that you're going to become like him. It's the natural progression of things with our life. Just as it is in the natural world with our relatives, whether it is a brother or a father or whoever it may be, the more that we hang out with them, the more that we become like them. And this is why it's very important that you choose your friends well. The scriptures tell us that bad company corrupts good morals. And boy, I gotta tell you, I know that one for a fact. But it has the opposite effect in that when you hang out with good people, people who love the Lord, who are following after the Lord, that it creates good morals in you as well. As you see it there, then you want that in your life. We should, all should have in our life all the time. We should have someone that we are discipling and we should have someone who is discipling us. And I don't care how old you are and how long you've walked with the Lord. All that is still very, very probable in our life if we give the Lord that opportunity. There are men in my life that I consider to be those that are over me, that, that disciple me. The discipleship looks a lot different than it did in the beginning of my walk. A lot of it is now is more because we are contemporaries of one another and we lean upon one another all the time for advice and instruction and direction in our life and our ministries. But then there needs to be someone under 
those, all of us that are younger in the Lord that need that instruction as well. It is the process which God has used to build and to strengthen the body of Christ. Jesus didn't say go out and make converts. He said go out and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things that you have learned from me. And that's how God builds the church, and that's how God still builds the church today. And that's what we need to be about is the Lord's business. It's interesting what's going on as I look at the church today and what's happening within the church and what the Lord ministered to my heart at the end of the year last year and just impressing upon my heart that we need to become an evangelistic church and a church that is reaching out to the lost and bringing people in. And then once they come in and receive Christ then giving them that discipleship that they need in order to grow in faith. And like the Lord is always like this, right? He didn't just give it to one hairy old dude. He happened to spread it around. There's a lot of things that are going on in the church right now that are moving towards this emphasis on evangelism. A lot of different things, a lot of different organizations that are, that, that, uh, that's what they teach and what they do are approaching me without me seeking them out, in which I just see that as greater confirmation that the Lord is doing the work. And that, that's what we need to do. We need to be that church that is reaching out. So we see here as Paul is thankful for their growth, this means that Christian maturity is never finished on this side of, etern of eternity. No matter how far a Christian has come in love and holiness, they can still abound more and more. Just as you receive from us, he says, and what Paul had wrote in the following verses was nothing new to the Thessalonians. In a few weeks he was with them, in the few weeks that he was with them, he instructed them in these basic matters of Christian morality. Paul knew it was important to instruct new believers in these things. So he told them the things that he instructed them was how to have a walk with God that pleases God. Paul took it for granted that the Thessalonians understood that the purpose for the, of their walk in, uh, in their manner of living was to please God and not themselves. I see this as a huge shortcoming in so many believers because we believe that our life is our own and that we can do whatever we want to do with our life. And we have not learned and we have not understood that we were bought with a price. We are not our own, we belong to Christ. If you know Christ today, then you belong to him and he, you are his and you are his to do with as he desires to do. But we live in a country that teaches something completely opposite of that. It teaches independence and you know, that we have to be our own person and we have to do all these things for ourselves, which is really, uh, not what God teaches in regards to life with him. We are not independent of Christ. We are not independent of the church. We are not independent of our family and our friends. We are all interconnected very tightly. And the problem that comes with us oftentimes is that we want to break loose those bonds, cast them off, live life the way that we want to in order to be able to 
fulfill our own desires. Oftentimes, there are those that go so far as that they will isolate themselves by themselves from everyone else, thinking to themselves that they're perfectly okay, not even realizing that they are becoming that person of Proverbs 18.1, who says that the man who isolates himself wants to fulfill his own desires and he rages against all wise judgment. So oftentimes this happens within the body of Christ. When the Christian has this basic understanding that our life is not our own, that it belongs to God, the following instruction regarding biblical morality makes sense. To be honest with you, if we don't have that firm conviction that my life is not my own, but that it belongs to Christ, then there's a question as to why I should live my, my life in such a way that I practice the things that the scriptures say that are necessary. In verse 2, it says, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. These were not suggestions from the pen of Paul. These are commandments from the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and must be received in that way. So when we read these things here in the scripture, we need to understand that it is God speaking to us. It applies to us in our own lives. And, and it's not up for opinion or discussion. To be honest with you, it's not up for opinion or discussion. God is always right. He's never wrong, ever. Verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. The will of God is clearly set forth in many places in Scripture, even though Christians often seem to have a great deal of difficulty applying it in everyday decision-making. Here's the thing. He's going to tell us here in a bit that what they had was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a whole lot better at telling you what you need to do than I am. Believe me, I'm not trying to be the Holy Spirit. All I'm trying to do is teach you the Word of God and understand that God's Holy Spirit will speak to you. And if you hear his voice, you need to obey. It's simple enough. But I want to address one thing very quickly here, because perhaps you are one of the Christians, and I've had so many, that have come to me and they said, you know what, I really want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, here you go. What God's will is for your life is your sanctification. It says it right there. It's just as plain as the nose on my face. It's not that funny, Mike. <laughs> the will of God the will of God is your sanctification that is being set apart for his service being cleansed, being purified and he's going to talk to us in a little bit about one of the issues, one of the greatest issues that plagues our, our world and it plagues the church today and that is sexual immorality and that has to be dealt with by the power of God and his Holy Spirit. It's the only way that it can be overcome. I have said it often, and I, I'll say it repeatedly, I'd rather deal with a junkie than I would with a sex addict. Because somebody who is a sex addict has a God-given nature toward it, where with the junkie I can just say, don't use no more, don't go where they do, stay away from it, get clean. But it's difficult 
because God has given us that drive naturally. And there's nothing wrong with that drive. What's wrong is how people use it in their life. And that's why it's important that you bring it under the control of God, his word, and his Holy Spirit. Just because it's natural doesn't mean you have to flaunt it out there for everybody. It, God has given us parameters in which that works. And outside of that, it's not acceptable. One of the other things we see in the scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks. It tells us that this is the will of God, that you rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You know, I challenge you to go through, take a concordance, go through and all the scriptures where it says the will of God. Just look up that phrase. And you will find that there in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are numerous occasions when it says, this is the will of God. You want to know the will of God for your life? Go there, look at those things, put that into practice. And then if that hasn't answered your question, come to me. I'll help you work it out. One of the things I have found is that by doing God's will, and especially in the area of sanctification, I find that I discover what God's will is in particular in my life and where I should go, what I should do, who, who I should speak to. All those things, all those questions are answered for me by my willingness to apply the will of God in my life. It is clear, um, it is God's clear will that his people be holy. That's what it tells us here. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, we had looked at that. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So this is the will of God, our sanctification. The word sanctification can mean a state of being set apart from sin to God or the process of becoming more dedicated to God. Probably the latter meaning was intended by Paul here. He was not referring to that final state of all Christians when they will be separated from the presence of sin as well as the penalty and power. Rather, he has probably had in mind the progressive sanctification of his readers, us as his, as his readers as well, by which they are conformed to the image of Christ in daily experiences by proper responses to the word and the spirit of God. The first instruction designed to produce greater holiness is abstinence from sexual immorality. Paul called his readers to avoid it, applying the need for exercising self-discipline. May I repeat that? Self-discipline. In other words, it's an action in our own life which we are in control of if we choose to bring it under the control and the power of the Holy Spirit. Christians are to avoid and abstain from any and every form of sexual practice that lies outside the circle of God's revealed will, namely adultery, premarital and extramarital uh, sex, homosexuality, and other perversions. 
the word that is used here, pornea, is translated sexual immorality, is a broad one and includes all these practices. So in other words, there, there's no way that we can justify having sexual behavior outside of the confines of marriage. I don't care. There is no excuse. There is no reason. You know, I understand why, but that doesn't justify it. We need to understand that God gives us clear instruction as to what we are to do. Paul gave these commands to a first century Roman culture that was marked by sexual immorality. At this time in the Roman Empire, chastity and sexual purity were almost unknown virtues. Nevertheless, Christians were to take their standards of sexual morality from God and not from the culture. And believe me, that's what I see is happening in the church today. Is that people are saying, oh, it's not that bad. There are pastors who are actually saying that homosexuality is okay. Some of them are foolish enough to reason it as, as long as they're in a monogamous relationship, then it's all right. And the scriptures are very clear. It is a sin. It is a grievous sin. And I will, and I always love to point it out. It's the last one in the list when you go through the different places where Paul speaks about it. What tops the list is adultery and fornication. And that's the ones that, that the church is most guilty of and has been for a long time. And it's growing and it's growing. And, and we need to understand that without purity within the church, the church grows more and more corrupt. You know, it's kind of like this. When you find out you have cancer in your body, there's only one thing that you can do. And that is eradicate it from your body. Otherwise, it will kill you. Sin in the church is that cancer that destroys and breaks down the strength of the body of Christ, just like cancer does in the natural body. That's why it's important that these issues are dealt with and that we understand that our sin is not our own. And we may think that we can sin and it won't affect others, but it's just like the cancer that is unseen. It is doing its work within the body when everybody doesn't realize it. And it, when it finally comes out in some form, either on the surface or in some kind of symptom, then we find out and boom, all of a sudden now, it's too late. We're doing life support on the body to try to keep it going. And that's why it's important that as Christians, that we deal with sin in our own lives. I don't expect to be and won't be a sin sniffer. I'm not gonna go around looking into your life, looking for sin. That is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit within your own heart and dealing with issues that need to be dealt with. We're talking about sexual sin here because that's what the text is talking about. But there are many other sins that we have in our lives that need to be dealt with. I'm always surprised at the number of Christians that don't think lying is that bad. But it is. It's a horrible sin. Covetousness. Oh man, it destroys, it destroys people. They get so caught up in the world, I gotta have this, I gotta have that, gotta do this, gotta go there, gotta have, you know, I gotta have the best, I gotta have the most. Paul, you know, said it well. He said, with food and clothing, and these things I will be content. No matter what it is, I'll, I'll find contentment in whatever I have or whatever I don't have, I'm still content. It should be, 
an earmark of what a Christian is as well. But instead, we look so much like the world that the world has a hard time figuring out who's a Christian and who's not. You know, I'm always, um, you know, you hear people all the time, they love to bring up the history of the church at various times that the church has been absolutely despicable. The things that they've done to kill people and try to force them into faith and all these kind of things, you know, and they talk about these different things that have gone on and I'm quick to tell them, I don't believe there were Christians. I don't believe they knew the Lord because you can't do the things, the atrocities that they did and be born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't categorize me with them because I am not, I'm not killing anybody. Although I may want to at some point, but I won't though because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within me that would prevent me from doing something as foolish as that. We live in a period of time just like it was in the times that the Thessalonians were alive and well. They had pornography that surrounded them. If you've ever seen the statues that, uh, of the Greek and the Roman Empire, they loved the human body. They had no problem at all of making statues that looked, I mean, so like life that you would not believe it. I've seen them in, in the British Museum, and I'm telling you, if they had eyeballs that were real, you would think they were a person. They look that lifelike. Every aspect of it looks that lifelike. And they, are, they did not put clothes on a lot of them, and so people were surrounded with that. And not only that, they lived in an environment which sexual looseness was not only practiced openly, but was also encouraged. In a Greek religion, prostitution was considered a priestly prerogative and an ex and extramarital sex was sometimes an act of worship. And to a Christian, the will of God is clear. Holiness and sexual immorality are mutually exclusive. No appeal to Christian liberty can ever justify fornication, ever. We have this great hope though in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Some people say this and they say, well, God will never allow me to be tempted to where I'll fall. That's not what it says there at all. God says you will be tempted and he will allow you to be tempted. But with that temptation, he will give you an option on how to escape that very temptation. Oftentimes we think that because we give in to sin that somehow or another God didn't give us the opportunity not to sin, but that is not the case. There is always a choice that we have to make to either do what's before us or to flee. Think of Joseph who when Potiphar's wife wanted to have sex with him, he knew it was wrong and he said, no way, I can't do this. And rather than staying there with her, he fled. And when he did, she grabbed his coat and kept it. And then she made false accusations and he ended up in prison for years because of doing what was right. But God gave him that way of, t of escape and that was to go to jail. Eventually, God would use that in his life 
and that he would become second in command of all Egypt. And through that, his family would be blessed and provided for a place where the Jews would grow in, in numbers of anywhere between one and two million that were led out of Egypt at one time. And you look at that and you see how all that worked together for the good of the nation, the good of the people. Had he not ran, had he not fled, boy, the story would be very different, wouldn't it? So it is in our life too. Oftentimes our, our choice is to flee. Our choice is not to go to that website, not to look at that movie on TV, not to, you know, whatever. That's our choice. And nobody is forcing us to make the choice to do it. God is offering you the opportunity to not do it by giving you a way of escape, whether it is to turn it off, throw it out, whatever you got to do. Jesus said it well, that if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, Jesus didn't mean that he wanted a bunch of one-eyed, one-handed Christians going around. But he's telling us this, that whatever measure that you need to take in order to get sin out of your life, then you need to do it. Perhaps it is that you need to not have a computer. Maybe it is that you need a phone, a flip phone that doesn't have any cell, you know, it doesn't have any of the service where you can get on the web. Whatever it may be that you need to do to overcome it, that option's there, it's up to you. Whatever you choose to do. Paul made it very clear what the will of God was for the Christian. The idea behind sanctification is to be set apart. And God wants us set apart from a godless culture and their sexual immorality. If our sexual behavior is no different than those who are in the world who do not know God, then we are not sanctified and set apart in the way that God wants us to be. God wants us to be set apart for his usage. And if you look in the Old Testament, this word sanctification is used for the elements, the uh, implements, I'm sorry, the implements that were used within the temple. All those were set apart. And what that meant was they were not to be used for anything else except for service to God. And that was it. And if they were, then they were defiled and they had to be destroyed and new ones had to be created. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants us to be so sold out to him that our lives are fully used for him and that we can say that for the most part, that is my life is being used of God. It'd be nice, you know, and there are those that have thought that, well, man, if we, you know, we just go away, get a commune, then we can do that. And you know what I have found? The, the people that tried to do that, as sin followed them right into the commune and it, and it went in there with them. They didn't leave it outside the gate. You cannot avoid it. It has to be the, the choice of the heart and the mind. That's the only thing that prevents it. It's the only thing that prevents me from doing things that I should not do. It's the Holy Spirit, accountability to you. These things work together in unison and the word of God in order to keep me in the bounds where I need to be. Because if you think somehow or another that I have attained this great righteousness that I never am tempted, I never have problems, I never have issues, I never want to do, do something wrong, you would be sadly mistaken. I have temptations in my life as well. And I must resist them. 
And I resist them, not in my own strength, but in the power of God, knowing, you know, I, I'm telling you, man, accountability is such a wonderful tool in the hands of God. It is. It prevents me from doing something stupid because I know that you guys are going to find out. And I'd have to stand up here and confess my sin in particular. I don't mind giving a broad brush, you know, to my sin, you know, saying I'm a sinner. You guys got to remember that. But I don't want to tell you in particular what I sin. And if you're stupid enough to do those kind of things, that could be one of the things that happens to you. You find yourself in front of the body of Christ confessing your sin before them. And I got to tell you, you don't want that. That's a hard thing to do. You don't want it. But it's necessary at times. We live differently than the world when we abstain from sexual immorality, something that is being foisted upon us all the way now from children in preschool and kindergarten are being taught sexual behavior. Should it surprise us that our children are growing up and before they're 11, 12 years old, they've lost their innocence and virginity because they're being encouraged by our culture and our society. A message like this does not bode well with most people who are outside of the church. They can't see any reason why they should abstain from sexual behavior. Hey, I like it. You like it. Let's enjoy it. God says, I want you to enjoy it, but you need to do it in that confine of marriage. The broad nature of this word for immorality, uh, for immorality which is pornea, um, shows that it isn't enough to just say that you have not had sexual intimacy with someone who is not your spouse. All sexual behavior outside of marriage uh, of the marriage covenant is sin, no matter what it is. God grants great sexual liberty in the marriage relationship. In Hebrews 13, 4 says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God honors marriage outside of the church. Those that are in the world that get married, God honors that. You realize this, the only thing that we have from the garden is marriage. Everything else was destroyed with the fall. But the institution of marriage carried on throughout all of history. It is a blessing and a gift that God gives. And it's sad that we are perverting it to that state to where it really has become so meaningless within our culture. So meaningless to so many, not to all, but to so many. Verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So Paul emphasized the same truth in a positive way by expanding on this prohibition. One avoids sexual immorality by learning how to control his own body with his passions, self-control in response to one's sexual desires. Paul taught um, what Paul taught could and must be learned. Christians are not the victims of circumstances or fleshly, fleshly passions. Sexual desire can be controlled by the Christian through God's power. Paul did not specify how to control one's passions. He implied that there may be several ways, but the Christian should choose a method that is both holy and honorable, and that is the action taken 
as an alternative to sexual immorality must be behavior that is set apart to the Lord in its motivation and recognized by others as intrinsically worth respect, worthy of respect. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20, we're not gonna go there, but it tells us that we are to um, control our bodies. And he makes it clear that in not doing so, that we actually sin against ourselves in doing that. The early Christian is responsible for his own body and behavior and not his neighbors. Every young Christian like the Thessalonians should learn how to deal appropriately with sexual temptation. And here he says in verse five, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So they were to deal with it. Uh, they were not to deal with it as the heathen did by indulging in passionate lust. Such behavior is a uh, mark of heathenism. A heathen is one who does not know God and here Paul put his finger on the key to overcoming sexual temptation. A Christian can overcome because he knows God. This makes all the difference. Paul did not say that the heathen uh, do not know about God. The reason they behave as they do is because they do not know him personally, even though they may know about him. You know, that's one of the things when you talk to people and you say, you know, do you know the Lord? They say, I believe in God. That's a common response. But then when you get them nailed down to believing in Christ, which is different than believing in God, although they are connected to the believer, we understand that you need to believe in God, you need to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. But to those in the world, they try to acknowledge, yes, I believe in God. Well, which God do you believe in? Well, the God that makes my life joyous. The one that gives me everything that I have needed. The one that doesn't call me to account for my sin. The one that says that I'm okay, I'm good enough because I'm a good person, I'll get to heaven. That's the one they want to believe in. But Jesus is that dividing line between those things. Because Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and none comes to the Father but by me and me alone. So believing in Christ and believing in God are essential to us as Christians but note that in the world, they do not necessarily, just because they say they believe in God, believe in the one true God. And you have to uh, work on that with them. Verse 6, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. So when we are sexually immoral, we take advantage and of and defraud others and we cheat them, uh, excuse me, we cheat them in greater ways than we can imagine. The adulterer defrauds his mate and children. The fornicator defrauds his future mate and children and both defraud their implicit partner. It is, it is a sin that affects greatly in our life and we have to understand that. With that whole thing. It tells us how much we should avoid it. Repeatedly in Leviticus 18, a chapter where God instructed Israel in the matter of sexual morality, the idea is given that one may not uncover the nakedness of another not their, that is not their spouse. 
The idea is that the nakedness of an individual belongs to their spouse and no one else. And it is a violation of God's law to give that nakedness to anyone else for any, for anyone else and for anyone else to take it. I'll get it out yet. And so what does that mean? When he says that, to look on the nakedness of someone, it's just exactly what it means. You got no right to look at other people when they're naked, other than your spouse. That's just how it is. But boy, there's a billion dollar industry that makes a living off of that one, isn't there? Shouldn't be a surprise. The enemy's doing everything he can to destroy the family, to destroy our culture. And he's, he's having his way with us, to be honest with you. He's doing all of that and there's very little resistance to it. And part of that is because the church isn't pure. The church isn't willing to purify itself, to say no to sin. It's so critical and so important in our life, in our, in our church. All of this is. In verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. So this is the second reason why Christians should be sexually pure, because our, of our call. That call is not to uncleanness, but to holiness. And therefore, sexual immorality is simply inconsistent with who we are in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, it says, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So here's the third reason for sexual purity. It is because to reject God's call to sexual purity is not rejecting man, but rejecting God himself. Despite the petty ways many rationalize sexual immorality, we still reject God when we sin in this way. It's not that we're rejecting man, we're rejecting God. God makes it very clear in his word what his expectations of us are. Paul's strong command here did not seem to come because the Thessalonians were deep in sin. No specific sin is mentioned. It seems that this was meant to prevent sin rather than to sit, rebuke sin in light of the prevailing low standards of their society and because of the seductive strength of sexual immorality. So Paul wasn't saying, hey, guess what? This is what you guys are doing. He's saying, don't do it. Don't let yourself become a part of it. And because there was an influence from the outside world that made it so easy to fall into that trap, it was culturally accepted. So therefore, you know, when something is culturally accepted, we have less resistance to do it. Well, if everybody else is doing it, then it's okay. But it's not okay. Not, not when it comes to us being Christians. Then in verse 9, he switches up the subject here. He says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you to you, for you're, you're, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So I mentioned in chapter 3 how Paul had taken note of the fact that they were doing well. They're loved one for another. And here again, he says to them, he's encouraging them, he said, I have no need to, to tell you this because you're doing it. But then you go, well, then why are you doing it, Paul? And well, it's because he wanted them to grow more and more in this area of their relationship with God, to grow in brotherly love. In verse 10, it says, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. 
It wasn't that the Thessalonians were without love. Their love toward all the brethren was well known, but they had to increase more and more in their love. Great exhortation for us that we grow in our love, our love for one another, our love for Christ. All that we talked about earlier in sexual purity. If you're, if you're not in love with Jesus, you'll never have victory over that in your life. I'll guarantee you. Because when you stop doing it because you love God and you want to honor God because you love him so much, then you're going to have the, you're going to tap into the power of God in order to be able to overcome. And so it is too with loving one another. If it is from any other source than through the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, then our love really amounts to nothing. It's just a good club that people are involved in. But the body of Christ is so much more than that. We genuinely care for one another. And we should. Because God encourages us to do so. But let us never be satisfied in this. Let us realize and understand that we need to grow more and more and more. And I can certainly speak for myself. An area of my life that I need to increase in is love for one another. Always. I know you guys don't believe this, but it's true. I'm a selfish pig. I am. I have to fight it all the time. You know, it's all about me. And God says, no, it ain't, it ain't about you, son. It's about everybody else. And more than that, it's all about Jesus. And by loving one another, we represent Jesus to one another. And people are blessed and people grow. Jesus said it well. They will all know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. That's what he says. So it should be that we receive this exhortation to grow in love more and more and more. In verse 11, he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we command you. So there's an encouragement here to, to lead a quiet life. And this means that we should have an aspiration or ambition in life that we should aspire to lead a quiet life. Aspire is, has the thought of ambition and is translated that way in several versions of the Bible. Quiet has the thought of peace, calm, rest, and satisfaction. That we would have that kind of life that in Christ, that we would find peace, that we would find satisfaction, that we would find our satisfaction in life and having peace with God. And that's what it's encouraging to us to do. We need to live that quiet life so that we can really take the time and give the attention to listen to God. And when we live that quiet life, we can listen to God and to get to know him better. The mind and to mind our own business, he says here. And this means that the Christian must focus on their own life and matters instead of meddling in the lives of others. Mind your own business is a biblical idea. Remember when we were going through the pastoral epistles, Paul spoke about those who were busybodies, who went around sticking their nose in everybody else's business and stirring the pot. And, and it's something we all have to be very careful of because we always, we love to pray for each other. Oh, did you hear about brother so-and-so? You know, he's doing this and he's doing that. We need to pray for him. 
In Jesus' name, amen. And what we just did really was gossip and backbite, but we did it in the name of Jesus and prayer. We need to be careful and to understand that if something has come to light in somebody's life, God has called us to pray, maybe not to speak to others about it. Clark had this to say about this. He said, Paul, however, does not mean that every individual is to mind his own business in such a way that all are to live apart from one another and to have no concern for others, but simply wants to correct the idle triviality which makes men open disturbers of the peace when they ought to lead a quiet life at home. We'll talk about this a whole lot more as we get into uh, chapter five about working with his own hands, but we must recognize the dignity and honor of work. Work is God's plan for the progress of society and the church. We fall into Satan's snare when we accept things to all, expect things to always come easily or to regard, regard God's blessings as an opportunity for laziness. Verse 12, now that you may walk properly toward those who are outside that you may lack nothing. So when we combine the love of our brothers with work, we walk properly. People who are not yet Christians, those who are outside, if you will, will see our example and be influenced to become followers of Jesus. I quoted the scripture out of the Gospel of John, where Jesus said, by your love one for another, that they will know that you are my disciples. Our conduct speaks volumes. You can say all you want to, but people are going to look at your life and see if you really do believe what you're talking about. Because what you say, if, it's, if you're not living it, people will notice that right away. And we need to make sure that we do. Paul completes the thought that he began in 1 Corinthians 3.10, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. If they followed his teachings and example, they would lack nothing and come to the place of genuine Christian maturity. That's what God wants for all of us. Uh, you know, I, I look at this and obviously uh, Paul is writing this epistle because of his heart, man. I mean, you remember when we started out, the, the purpose that, that this epistle came into play is because Paul was concerned about them and the trials and that they were going through and whether or not they were going to stand strong in the faith. And when he heard of it, he wrote this letter to them quickly, but he made it very clear. What I'd rather be is with you so that I could help you to perfect this walk of faith that you have. Because I had a short time with you, there's so much more that I need to share with you. And he takes the opportunity, he shares with in this letter, I find it interesting, he wants to be there, but that doesn't stop him from saying, hey, guess what? You need to make sure that, that you do this. You do not give in to sexual immorality. Make sure you don't do that. To walk in holiness and truth, walk in love and honesty. And these are the things that Paul says to us. And I ask the question, are we walking with God in these things, in holiness, in love, and honesty? This is the will of God for our lives. Let us aspire to these acts of character in our own life. Remembering this, 
But you cannot do this unless you know Christ as your Savior. It's impossible. And if you've never given your life to Christ, well, of course, that's the first thing. That's the first step you got to take. And that is very simple to remember, to know that we all sinned against God and the penalty for that, that is death. But the free gift of God is forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up as a sacrifice to pay the debt that we owed to God. If you believe that, if you believe that he died and he rose from the dead, having victory over sin and death, and if you confess your sin and, and believe that in this, you will have eternal life. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. It's a matter of surrendering yourself to him today. And if you have not done that, I'm going to encourage you to do so. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you so much for the blessings that you bestow upon us. Lord, it's a, it's a difficult thing to put, talk about matters like these, but a necessary thing in our lives. For in this, being sanctified, the call to purity and holiness, we will find, Lord, that our lives will be better for it. And not only that, that our testimony to others will be better for it. That, Lord, as they see us in the life that we live, they would aspire to have a life like ours. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today on these matters of holiness, purity, righteousness, love, honesty. Lord, strengthen us in these times for this. And, Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand, please?